Adrian? He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then it was controlling when I left the house. And eventually, what I thought. Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror, film and feminism. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. Another bonus episode for you this week, focused on a new release which you just couldn't resist covering, The Invisible Man, a reimagining of the classic universal monster that first graced the screen in James Whale's 1933 film adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel. This version takes it in an entirely new direction. Scripted and directed by Lee Whannell, a name already well known in the genre world for having co-created the Saw franchise with his frequent collaborator James Wan, he wrote the first three installments and starred in the first one, the Insidious film franchise, and for writing the horror films Cooties and the Mule. As a director, Whannell made his debut with Insidious Chapter 3, wrote and directed the very excellent sci-fi horror Upgrade, and now really cements himself as a horror filmmaker with The Invisible Man. His take on the classic story turns the focus to Cecilia Cass, played here by Elizabeth Moss, a woman who manages to escape from a controlling, abusive relationship with a wealthy and brilliant tech entrepreneur. But when Cecilia's ex commits suicide, she suspects his death was a hoax. Her sanity begins to unravel as she desperately tries to prove that she's been hunted by someone nobody can see. I'm not going to say much else about the plot, Except that it's an entirely new spin on the classic story, achingly modern, and such a sensitive and horrifying tense ride of a film. The Invisible Man does what horror does best. It talks about difficult subjects while serving you up with thrilling dose of entertainment and scares. I'm joined in this episode by podcaster and regular guest Becky Dark. Spoiler alert, we both love the film. We work really hard to refrain ourselves from spoilers in the first part of our conversation. And I cannot stress this enough, this is a film best watched knowing as little as possible. So we'll make it very clear when we're going to move into spoiler territory to discuss some of the finer details of The Invisible Man. Following that, I was lucky enough to sit down with Lee Winnell himself to talk about the making of the film, his influences, his collaborative process with Elizabeth Moss and a lot more. So I'll make a note of when you can skip to the interview in the show notes. The film comes out in the UK this Friday, the 20th of February, and if you're up for an intense, highly stressful two hours, I can't recommend it enough. Hopefully this episode isn't as stressful, but we'll see. What happened to him? Adrian's dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? He said that wherever I went, he would find me walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Hi, Becky. Hello, Anna. I'm so excited to talk about The Invisible Man with you. I'm also really excited. We were starting to talk about it earlier and kind of stopped ourselves to make sure to save that's all of right our reactions I know I started talking about a thing and then I was like no I'll wait <laughs> <laughs> what were your initial impressions of the film I was 
hugely impressed. I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't really know what, what to expect. I didn't actually know a lot about it going in. I knew it was Elizabeth Moss, who I love, and I knew it was Lee Wannell, um, who I know from the Insidious films, um, the first couple of which I really like, and the third one, um, which he then directed, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but then Upgrade, I love. So when I found out that he was, you know, behind this and writer and director as well, I was like, okay, well, this is a really good meeting of talent. Um, but, you know, I went in with relatively reserved expectations and I came out and I was like, yeah, that was really good. Same, very much same. <laughs> Did you have any relationship with the original Universal Monster? No, I haven't actually seen the original Universal. Okay. Um, I've seen a few of the classic monsters from mm -hmm. um, the Universal kind of canon, but not the Invisible Man. I think it's, um, it is one of those, or he is one of those kind of monsters that is enough in um, kind of public consciousness that I'm aware of it. I've definitely seen clips of it, mm -hmm. um, kind of, you know, I think he like nicks a bike and knocks someone's hat off. And obviously I'm kind of aware of that. The iconography. Um, the iconography and the very sort of specific, he's got quite a specific silhouette, mm -hmm. um, which is actually kind of, played on in the, the yes, new film is. at one point um but I haven't actually seen the film and I think actually my um sort of biggest relationship with um the invisible man is probably hollow man <laughs> <laughs> the Kevin Bacon vehicle from what mm -hmm. mid 90s uh 2000 never yeah oh my god okay yeah, yeah, yeah. the Paul Verhoeven classic classics uh a it's a it's a it's a term yeah yeah, yeah. it is <laughs> i think the hollow man is mostly known for having an invisible penis swinging around mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, i'll probably cut that the thing that i remember most about it i remember when i saw i can't believe it was 2000 um so when i saw it just being like really kind of like freaked out by it i didn't particularly enjoy it but there are images and scenes from that film that have really stayed with me and I've never seen it a second time and I don't really want to because Kevin Bacon's so nasty in it it's a really lecherous film that really, one really really lecherous um there's a horrible sexual assault scene in it and there's also that gross bit where he like crushes the rat Oh, I'd forgotten and about so, that. And so, like, he's got, he's obviously his hand's invisible and you see the rat and then he crushes the rat and then, like, the effects show you, like, all the kind of goo coming out of the rat, but, like, you can't see his hand, so you see the whole thing. It's, like, totally oh, no, gross. I don't want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably on YouTube, so you don't have to see, like, the whole <laughs> film again. How do you think Lee Winnell updates this idea of the invisible man to 2020? Well, I mean, it's so grounded in this idea of domestic abuse. Um, and the notion that you could have somebody that you're living with and you are in an abusive relationship with that you're desperate to escape um, and then you think you've escaped but that terror that they are able to not only continue to kind of... Um, like come after you and affect your life and like really terrorize you but that a you can't see them and b no one believes you like to me that is 
really really terrifying and I think that um you know the the conversations around um kind of domestic abuse um and people believing victims and believing women um is I mean it's that's a very you know pertinent topic it feels so topical without being forced I agree and it just uses the language of cinema and the iconography of the invisible man so well in my opinion like it regardless of how you choose to interpret it because I think there's there's different ways you know you can give it that's this intense reading of it being about women or victims of domestic abuse mm -hmm. and gaslighting being disbelieved um I thought it was a lot about trauma as well and yeah. just how difficult and slow and painful and every day it is to get out of certain patterns and and then it just works so beautifully as both as an update of a classic monster which is sort of a comical figure at this point so mm -hmm. making him scary again even you know modern interpretations of it like the hollow man are still a bit basic there was a there was a kind of campness to hollow man but not yeah. like fun camp just no. kind of but it low quality and it never kind of really got scary in the way that the best horror films no, are I agree. like it's never really insidious and part that's not a pun intended <laughs> but the best horror for me at least is the one that stays under your skin for reasons that you might not necessarily articulate in the moment mm. or even understand fully but the images or the ideas that it plants in you just sit there with you. And did you find this film actually scary? Anna, I came out of this screening exhausted. <laughs> like, so it, it's two hours long. Yeah. Um, Go by so quickly. So quick. And really the only kind of feeling of the length of the movie was just that I came out and I just felt like wrung out. I moved around in my seat probably more than I can remember in like recent memory of like cinema trips because I was like leaning forward with my kind of hands over my mouth and then something like really like tense and sort of the tension would start to build and I'd start to get a bit nervous about what was happening on screen and I'd sort of lean back and then it would get worse and worse and I'd start like sinking down and like and then I'd be like I'm almost off of my seat and so I'd have to kind of wiggle my way back up again so I was sitting up straight and then I'd realize that about 15 minutes later it happened again like it's it's super super tense and like yeah I was I was like I was like physically reacting to it it does feel so visceral doesn't yeah. it and so much of that i thought was down to elizabeth moss's oh. performance she is remarkable in this film i mean like the gina rowlands of her generation just like that sort of power to draw you in i think to just completely empathize with what she's feeling in whatever role she's in and I think what's so impressive about this performance specifically is we, you never really see the monster, you know, in, I know that sounds ridiculous because it's called the invisible man. What I mean by that is that Adrian never really, because he is this master manipulator, this, you know, gaslighter, 
he never really shows outwardly that monster within. And so we have to read it all through Elizabeth Moss's performance and the way that she reacts to him physically, the way that we watch her kind of um, creeping around or, you know, whatever. So we see the effects of his behavior more than we see the behavior exactly and you know she she's in almost every scene of this movie and I say that I'm I was exhausted at two hours of watching it like what it must have been like to make for her like it's it's a physical performance not so much in that she's doing sort of big action set pieces or anything but her her posture is so important the way she moves around creeping around you know the the way she sort of knits her brow like everything portrays this sort of this woman who's on the verge of breaking um but still somehow managing to muster this kind of inner strength to try and get herself out of this situation but also this massive hyper awareness yes like this paranoia that she feels about everything Mm -hmm. but kind of calculated like it's paranoia that's feels almost like a reaction uh, to a threat to a constant threat and to constant surveillance like she's constantly looking for ways to protect herself to understand what the surroundings are what are the what is the layout where are the cameras who's looking what are the entry points like she's constantly trying to protect herself mm. and i found it so amazing the intensity of her performance is such that even before we see any violence in the first scene when we first meet her she's in bed and even just adrian's hand on her hip is just so already domineering just by the way that she reacts to getting up out of bed mm-hmm. in the middle of the night you know, if so, if you're in bed with a loved one and they've got their arm draped over you, you may move it kind of gingerly because you don't want to disturb them. But that's not what she's doing. And the the subtlety of her performance is such that even though she's moving his hand in a way that could be seen as oh well you know she just doesn't want to wake him up yeah but why doesn't she want to wake him up and you know that from just like the look on her face the way she opens her eyes in that first close-up shot of her face she's obviously not been asleep that is not a slow opening of her lids as she kind of comes around she's been pretending to sleep and waiting and then bang her eyes are open and she's moving and that is you know it's those little things that really start to make the audience understand the situation that she's in i mean even before we know what the situation is we already feel the tension that first scene where she which is almost entirely in the trailer where she runs away from the home is so tension filled it just puts you on edge from the very first shot absolutely i was not expecting the opening of the invisible man to essentially be a prison break i mean that's what she's doing and you're right that tension is almost from the first shot and it's all you know you're with her you don't want her to make a noise and then there will be a noise and you know you feel the panic that she feels and honestly it's it's an amazing performance we were talking about this before but actually in retrospect when the the trailer first got released and it's quite long i think it's two and a half minutes Mm. or something I thought that, oh, this is giving too much away. Mm. I don't like it. 
and then stuff started coming on online after the first people had seen the tr- had seen the film and after having seen the film I can absolutely I think guarantee that it sets up the tension but it does not actually reveal almost anything about the film yeah you're right and it's funny because when we first sat down I said well you know have you seen the trailer it's ridiculous it gives so much away like it almost shows that entire opening and then he said well yeah but it doesn't really show much from later does it and I was like oh, it does it shows everything and we, we watched it I was like <laughs> yeah. no you're right it really doesn't but what it does do is I was watching it again it was almost like I had PTSD I was like <laughs> oh my god I'm terrified all over again <laughs> I mean, it's 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 quite difficult to talk about this film without revealing too much about it. Mm. But kind of, we'll we'll go into spoiler territory now. But is there anything you want to touch upon for people who may not have seen the film yet? Comes out on Friday mm-hmm. that would potentially entice them to come and see it. I think if you like horror to like really shit you up but not (laughs) not in a kind of um supernatural you know like so hereditary for example is the last film that really shat me up and that you know it had that kind of supernatural layer this is very much in the real world even though the invisible man is in it um it's very anchored in reality and i mean it like yeah it's really affecting um and if you want something that you know you're going to sort of sit there for two hours and wiggle about in your seat for then yeah i think it's it's a good film it works so much as a as a kind of domestic thriller yes absolutely as much as it does as a horror film absolutely where are you show yourself surprise so we're gonna move on onto the spoiler stuff now mm-hmm. and honestly i've been just gagging <laughs> to talk to someone about all of the stuff in this film <laughs> let's do it oh my god okay can we talk about adrian for a second yes because i found adrian fascinating as he is essentially the contemporary villain which is a high-tech yeah. multi-millionaire hyper smart narcissistic playboy mm-hmm. well Calling him a playboy is not fair. Yeah, that's kind of misleading, but I know what you mean. He has the... He is like an Elon Musk type dude. He's very handsome. He's very charismatic. And I think, you know... He's a charming psychopath. Exactly. But we and don't you mean. kind of you learn a little bit about how um Adrian and Cecilia meet and later on she's sort of saying, you know, why me? Why did you pick me out of the crowd? You know, I think they met at some event or like a friend's party or something. Um and the way that she sort of talks about their meeting, you can imagine him sort of, you know, this charming billionaire, you know, hyper intelligent. Um and that's how narcissists work. That's how, you know, manipulators and abusers work is they have to be charming because otherwise people just, you know, keep their distance. You, they need to be able to draw people in and like that just rolls off him, I think. Oh, totally. But it's interesting that we don't, so we don't really get to meet that side of him except through Cecilia's narration mm. and her describing of their relationship. We barely even get to see him. Like I thought for a long time that, 
throughout the film we see him at the very end physically see him but i thought that he was going to remain in the shadows i was like oh that would have been so cool Mm. if he was literally a faceless villain who then becomes invisible through his own intelligence and technology and we never actually get to put a face to this person that we've built up through other people's talk and other people's conversation about him yeah, yeah we do, we do get to meet his reactions yeah. to him his brother's reactions to i found the brother fascinating oh as well. go on well just he again a little like we were saying with elizabeth moss he's got this physicality and as you learn more about the relationship that he has with adrian um and the kind of power that adrian wields over his brother um you can you can start to read like the the exhaustion on his face his slightly sort of hunched over so even though he appears to be quite a high-powered lawyer and you know has these very plush offices and he's sort of turned in on himself and he looks a bit sickly and browbeaten um and you know he's obviously again being manipulated and i think you're supposed to see um in him this kind of you know he's he's kind of callous and um uh, sort of i don't know like i think you're supposed to see him as a bad guy and then as the the story unfolds you realize that again he's just been somebody who's been kind of turned into this person by adrian's kind of effect upon him which i loved one of cecilia's best burns towards the brother is when she literally tells him it's like you're just a jellyfish oh yes you're just a spineless version of your brother yes you're sort of mean you're sort of crooked but you're not really you're just doing it because someone else told you what to do and they gave you the tools to do it yeah but you couldn't come up with any of this shit by yourself. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So to the point. That scene when they're across the table from each other in the hospital and he essentially unveils himself to be like, mm. you know, um, actually, you know, I'm in on it. Adrian's still alive. This is the deal. That sort of one-on-one was just amazing. I was hooked I loved it. It really validates the whole of Cecilia's journey because at one point I almost started to falter being like, oh, is she is she actually maybe making some of this up? Mm. And it's Is the, it paranoia? Yeah. yeah. And the whole journey of her being gaslit by Adrian, by his brother, by this whole set of circumstances around her. What did you make of, of that approach to the story? So... <sighs> It had that kind of the classic trope, I guess, of, you know, her having the meds in the classic sort of American orange prescription medication bottle, um, which is so used throughout horror, especially the horror that um, codes the woman as this hysterical, paranoid, you know, kind of unreliable narrator um but it's used in such a clever way in this so he uses it as this kind of clue uh this kind of plant to give her this clue that uh you know actually he's back because she knows that she's dropped it 
Um, it's got the blood on it. Um, and you're right, there are points. It's ve- it walks the tightrope very cleverly, I think, between, um, you know, us us knowing she's not crazy. Like, we know she's not. We see the footsteps on the sheet. We see, we think we see the imprint in the chair. We see the cold breath behind her when she stood out on the porch. We know there's something. But like you say, how much of it is her I mean she's got PTSD there's absolutely no doubt about it um and how much of it is that and the line I think is is walked very cleverly Mm. and I like that so I'm I'm not a particular fan of (laughs) things being too ambiguous in movies I like it when it's got a bit of a question mark hanging over it but by the end of the movie I prefer it if I know which way it's gone if you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah. so you know I like that it does give you those effects that that, you know they're cool they kind of show you that the invisible man is there um but I think it gives you just enough to kind of make you almost like just empathise with her family because, you know, she's got her sister who doesn't know what to believe. She's on the receiving end of some really confusing communication. Um, James, the cop that she's staying with. Um, I love that relationship. Oh. A, I love James's relationship with his daughter. Yes. Beautiful, yeah. gorgeous, obsessed. <laughs> I love the fact that he's so clear protective but also knows his boundaries and priorities but listens and is so empathetic and generous but then really kind of you know oh no this is my home this is my daughter i need to protect her as a priority but also no hint at all of any romantic relationship and i love that shit zero so i love it and you know you couldn't blame her because man can that guy wear a pair of trousers His physicality is so important because he's massive and she is in his house and really, you know, firstly, he's very physically um, imposing. Yes. Secondly, he's a cop. So he has got... He's a figure with authority both physically and through, you know societal norms exactly because he's a cop and it's the states you know Mm -hmm. he'll be armed which is always an extra kind of Mm -hmm. um and he's a father so he's a protective figure in every possible way that is exactly right but because it's the invisible man he can't do anything that scene where adrian well actually it's not adrian is it when the invisible man beats up james and incapacitates him my heart just sank because every single barrier of protection that Cecilia and we had is taken down. James is just this figure of of protectiveness on every single level. And if he's down, then what else is left? Yeah, absolutely. And again, the casting of Elizabeth Moss is so good because she's, she's small, she's petite. Mm. Um, and even though she's she's got a lot of physical presence throughout so much of the movie as i said you know she's so turned in on herself she's she is a victim she's been made 
a victim and she's very physically small um and i think again that sort of because she's in james's house that contrast between him and her it makes her look even tinier um in fact i think chelsea um in fact, I think Sydney, the daughter, even has like a couple of inches on her. Yeah, so yeah, she's, she does. Yeah, yeah she's tiny. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you're so, 100% right. So when she actually gets attacked physically by the invisible man, it becomes so horrific mm. because she's literally lifted up mm. like a, like a ragdoll. Mm. It's horrifying to watch. And the camera movements as well that he uses are so, I mean, it's, not dissimilar to some of the tricks that he pulled in Upgrade. Very different contexts and kind of serve different purpose- purposes. But just visually so assaulting. Mm. And you really feel them. Because the previously up until those moments, the film is so well... The camera is so well behaved in so many ways. <laughs> what a great way to put it. You know what I mean? Like it's just... It's very classical in its approach. The tension is horrendous. Mm. But the cameras, the stylings of it actually are quite withdrawn. Like, you know, where it's a lot of very, uh, very fixed shots, a lot of focusing and creating tension around inanimate objects, around oh. the possibility of someone being there, of someone watching. Yeah, you have hit the nail on the head. So when he actually attacks her, it's it feels like a fucking punch. Yeah, yeah. That what you're saying there about the building of tension with those kind of those static shots and those wide shots and whether it was um lee Winnell or whether it's um the dp or the you know whoever has has sort of come up with the way that they've done that is so clever because they are playing on as horror fans i think specifically they are playing on our expectations when you have a wide static shot, you are looking, right, where is he then? What's going to move? What's going to knock off? What's going to flutter? You know, where's a footprint going to suddenly appear or a curtain move? And it doesn't. And so you don't get that relief. You're just, it, it holds it and holds it and holds it. And then the camera will either move or it'll cut to something and you're like, but, but then you know if he's not there where is he we're relying on those little visual cues to let us know where he is and when they don't you're like oh my god maybe he's behind me you know he could be anywhere and that i thought was so clever and so fucking terrifying you're so right i mean like literally after i came back home from that film i was staring in every single corner in my apartment being like is is there something there is there something there? Every time a fucking cat stares at a point <laughs> in the room, I'm like, well, there's something there. I, I mean, would, I'm convinced. I would love to have a pet, but today I'm extremely grateful that I don't because I moved into a new house in uh, November last year. So, you know, only like three months ago. And it's a lot larger than the flat that we were in previously. And um, tonight will be the first night that I am in that house alone on my own. And if I had a cat or something just sort of suddenly looking into a corner or like peering over over behind a door or something, I would, I don't know what I would do, but yeah. I would probably lock the doors behind me and run for cover. <laughs> Literally, my cat does that all the time where he'll just <laughs> stare at a point on the wall or in the room. And it's like, there's nothing there. Or is there? Exactly. 
And after seeing this fucking film, I was like, there is. 100% there is. It just taps into this fear of... And we were talking with uh, Rihanna about a completely tonally different film, Practical Magic, mm. but how it taps into this fear of being watched mm. or stalked or someone just looking through or sort of invading your safe space. And that could be a place of work. It could be a friend's house, your house, your room, whatever it may be. We all have those spaces where we feel completely secure. And suddenly this feeling of someone being in there that yeah. shouldn't be there, whatever it may be. And Elizabeth Pl- Moss plays it to perfection because even just looking at her face, looking at a fixed point at a chair or at a place on the floor is terrifying because you can instantly empathize with the with the paranoia or the notion yeah. that maybe there's something else. That and she's could, like sensing the presence. Of and somebody. it could be supernatural and it cannot be. But there's something weird. Mm. And what did you think of the what did you think of the way that the invisible man does not resort to supernatural or otherworldly elements to tell the story i don't like all its eyes <laughs> it's like just in case you needed to make this film even fucking creepier he's got a suit on that looks like some sort of like hell monster with like a million eyes blinking eyes you're just moving your hats in a way that makes it so much creepier it's not okay anna i wasn't into it it reminded me of the teeth monster from channel zero right do you remember that yeah there's too much of everything just too many eyes <laughs> yeah. i'm not i don't like it well, it's very spider-like it's very it? spidery yeah. yeah absolutely and obviously like i'm what, what is he he's like a like an optics genius expert yeah genius so i don't are they like i don't know if they're cameras or sensors or doubly terrifying if they're mini cameras right yeah but the way they like move independently honestly as if (laughs) i know that i just keep doing this with my hands which is podcast gold obviously but (laughs) it's sort of constantly blinking yes exactly it's terrifying but it was horrible yeah (laughs) the detail of that and it also gave him sort of texture oh, I know. that was inhuman because mm-hmm. in the previous yes, incarnations right. it's inhuman of, that is right even though it's not supernatural even though there's no mad medicine going on even though it's a suit mm-hmm. like you know it's it's a piece of clothing it's technology yeah. isn't it like your point earlier the fact that you know he's still a human being but he's made this texture that his skin takes when he's wearing the suit and it's only really visible when she throws paint at him mm-hmm. or he's got blood on him or, or she like malfun- stabs him and it kind of breaks some of the you know it's malfunctioning but it's got this texture it's like oh that's that's not skin that's mm. not someone that's like a thing mm. and then it becomes even scarier yeah because even though there's a really um horrendous human being in that suit it then becomes sort of a monstrous thing yeah, because you're you, don't, absolutely you don't really right. want to touch that. Oh, no. no. Oh, it's no moisturizer that can fix that. <laughs> we were mentioning before the fact that the trailer doesn't actually reveal as much of the film as we're led to believe when we first watch it. What did you think about 
the all the twists and the turns that are revealed in the third half of the film. So you you find out that the brother was in on it all along. And one of the bits that really sort of pulled me up short and I was like, oh shit, maybe I don't know what's happening was when they initially in- reveal that it's the brother underneath the suit. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening. But then, you know, it's very clever and it kind of, you know, explains why that is. Um, I thought the reveal with the... Um, contraceptive pills and the fact that she's pregnant is earth shattering um because it takes that notion of domestic abuse and it elevates it from beyond kind of mental torture beyond the possibility that he's been violent to her to the fact that he's not necessarily been sexually violent because I don't think we're supposed to get the impression that he has forced himself on her or raped her. I think it's a little bit implied, but it's never made explicit. Exactly. What he's actually done is he's swapped out her contraceptive pills. So when they are having sex, and I think, you know, you're right, if she is unhappy in the relationship, then that's probably non-consensual. But she then is you know told by the doctor once she is um incarcerated or um once she's in the the psychiatric yeah Yeah. sectioned thank you um she is told by the doctor once she's sectioned that she's actually pregnant and that is just it's like the ultimate control yeah it's like the ultimate invasion her body is not even her body it's his he controls what not just the control over her fertility or her choice whether to have children or get pregnant or not but just being able to continue to invade her yes exactly yeah that's right it's very brilliant writing and it's very fucking grim yeah it's really grim and this sort of maybe gives a bit of a a sort of glimpse into actually how like intense this movie is because when she steals the pen and she runs the shower and she goes to get into the shower i thought oh she was going to give herself an abortion Aww. or like i thought she was like going to try and yeah, lose the baby herself. get rid of the baby and even though that's not what happens I just suddenly thought, like, bloody hell, it it goes to show what this film has made me think up to this point, if that's where I thought it was going next. It's quite full on. Yeah. Um, But obviously what she actually does is she uses it as a law for him because he is now desperate to have this baby. And the brother, the lawyer, when he basically does the reveal that he's in on it, you know, he is saying you can come back as long as you keep the baby, like you can basically live how you want, you know, he'll give you whatever you want, but you have to keep the baby. And of course, so her law is very clever because she makes him think that she's going to kill herself. And that's when he reveals himself. And that's when she fucking stabs him in the chest a bunch of times. And it was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was. Just to wrap up, what were your thoughts about the final twist? So the fact that she basically... um, 
gets herself back into the house with him, gets him to reveal himself. And then all she needs, because there's right up until the end, she's just, she's sure. trying to gaslight her right up until the end. Yeah. And she's sure, she's sure, she's sure. But she's not sure. There's there's that little doubt in her mind. Is this all in my head? Like, I know it's not all in my head because I know he's alive. I can see him in front of me. But I need to be 100% sure. And when um, she gets him to speak that word, when he says surprise, which obviously she'd heard a couple of times earlier in the film, she knows it was him. She knows it wasn't the brother. She knows it was him. And... Then, you know, goosebumps. You're giving me fucking goosebumps right now. It's so good. So brilliant. And then she's so cold and calculated. And oh, I, I just thought it was. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a brilliant ending. Um, I feel like we'd gone on such a roller coaster with this character, and you know, she and she leaves with the suit. Yeah, yeah, she does. She does. Do you think she keeps the baby? I don't know. I don't know either. In my head, I would prefer her not to in the sense because she, you can feel that it's taken her so long to crawl out of that prison. Yeah. The physical prison the mental prison the emotional one and then this this other high-tech horrific haunting and then i don't want her to have any part of adrian left yeah i yeah i completely get that and often what i think when i'm trying to kind of figure out you know did this thing happen at the end of a movie or did they make this decision after the credits rolled or whatever i try and put myself in the character's shoes and in this I just don't know what I do I don't know um I agree with you I'd prefer it if maybe she didn't just mainly because it just wasn't her choice Hmm. but then maybe that's the final kind of um that last bit of kind of agency is that is that decision whether to keep it or not and you know she does look that you know the the final shot of the film is that kind of that close up on her face as you sort of see almost her relief and the realization that he's gone and that she is now back in control of her life um so yeah i don't know i kind of love that they leave it open-ended i do as well it's that question mark that they leave at the end that doesn't really affect the rest of the film i don't think exactly doesn't ruin it doesn't make it better it's just something for the character to deal with yeah. and it leaves us it doesn't change your relationship to her and in fact after everything that she's been through because we haven't even talked about the fact that he kills her sister oh god there's so much <laughs> <laughs> you know she's been through so much you know accused of her sister's murder she's been impregnated she's been made to think that she's accused of hitting sydney yes of violating the trust of every person that's protected her and helped her exactly and in some ways it would be 
too neat for it to just be like her kind of gazing off into the distance and you know that Mm. all of those ends are wrapped up it's good that you know that almost after the credits has rolled she's still got some stuff to grapple with because it otherwise I feel like it would almost undermine the shit that that poor woman has been through and I love that I think it's part of the why this film is so beautifully grounded in reality in that trauma is messy Mm. and there's no clean break after an experience like that no exactly even though she sort of gets rid of the person that was putting her through this and well both of them and the main guy adrian there will still be stuff to deal with exactly even if he's gone and in a way the film even does that at the beginning where adrian is presumed dead but she's not miraculously okay it just doesn't go away that quickly and i love the fact that even though she's clawed her way out of as much of it as possible there will be still stuff to get over and stuff that she'll probably never be able to get back yeah yeah what a movie man fucking love it (laughs) honestly living for this new era of the universal monster universe are you have you seen the mummy yeah what did you think did you like it nah nah okay nah okay I, I thought maybe was... you were the one person who liked it. I don't nah. know. I was excited then for no, a moment. No, no, no. I think they've <laughs> admitted the, the failures of the dark cinematic universe, but now we're taking a different approach. Yeah. This... And I read today that Elizabeth Banks was going to do The Invisible Woman. Yes, she is. Excited. I mean, The Invisible Woman, it's a film from the 40s, but it's a comedy. Right. So actually, there's a whole... This is not new shit. In the after kind of the the establishment of the original Universal Monsters, mm. there were sort of female versions of all the monsters. They re- they were like they exist. You can go back. They're not included in all the all the fancy Blu-ray packs. Sure, sure. But they're there. Very often they just weren't they weren't going as deep into the horrific as the their male counterparts were. Yeah. Well, I am really up for an Elizabeth Banks Invisible Woman, big time. Yeah, I'm also up for a new mummy, but I'm more of a fan of the Brendan Fraser one. Oh, Anna. Yes. That's a conversation for another time. That's a conversation for another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Becky, thank you so much. Thank you what a film yeah. where can people find out more about your work um so on twitter i'm bunny dark on letterboxd i'm becky dark um i've got a couple of podcasts that are doing the rounds but just follow me on twitter and everything's on there amazing thanks so much thank you are you okay he's sitting in that chair Thanks so much for doing this. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for chatting to me. I saw the film last night and it was really striking for multiple for multiple reasons. But before I kind of get into some of the themes and the construction of the film that I wanted to talk to you about, could you uh, talk a little bit about your own relationship with The Invisible Man, both the novel and the 1933 film? Well... My relationship to The Invisible Man has kind of been, you know, tangential in that sense of he's a part of that rock star club of monsters that's been around for a long time. 
Uh, you've got your Draculas, the Wolfman, you've got Frankenstein. And my introduction to those characters, I remember one day I stayed home from school and watched the film Mad Monster Party. Have you ever seen this film? Yeah. It's a classic. Yeah. I mean, I actually... Not as well known as it should be. I know, I know. And it, it, it's a good gateway drug for kids into these monster characters mm-hmm. um, because it's all done with the stop motion animation. Uh, it's very 60s. There's a lot of grooving and like <laughs> a lot of sort of... 60s uh, kind of 60s camp, you know, and and uh, but that I remember was the first time these monsters really registered for me. I remember after that film, I became kind of obsessed with these monster characters, you know, anything to do with Transylvania or, um, you know, anything in that realm I was really interested in for a long time. I used to go through these obsessions as a kid that drove my father crazy. Like I would go through a six month James Bond obsession and then it would be over and I would move on to something else and there was a cycle of obsessions I mean I can relate I still go through that I know yeah <laughs> I kind of do too I remember the shark one lasted a long time after I saw Jaws there might have been a year or two of shark obsession um, there's also been a shark film renaissance in the in the last couple of years so you must have enjoyed yeah, that yeah that's well but what's interesting about it is that Spielberg kind of dropped the mic on shark movies like I mean, I'm sorry to all the people out there who've made shark movies since Jaws, but nothing's ever measured up. Nobody's ever said, well, that's equal to Jaws in terms of shark menace. But have you seen the Meg, though? You know what? I haven't seen the Meg. (laughs) I'm going to say it's not up there with Jaws. Um, But so that was my relationship with the Invisible Man was sort of, he was this pop culture totem that was always in my peripheral vision. I mean, they're used every day. My, My daughter watches animated movies starring Dracula as voiced by Adam Sandler and the invisible man as voiced by David Spade. And, and the iconography of those monsters has become so familiar that they can use it in children's films. Now it's, it's that safe. Mm-hmm. And so when this idea of doing the invisible man was suggested to me, my first thought was how do I get it out of that familiarity? How do I strip away all the familiar, uh, you know, icons of this character that, that, the hat and the trench coat and the bandages. Um, I had to, I had to literally and metaphorically strip away the bandages and kind of concentrate on the core idea of the character. And what for you is the core of idea for it? Because one of the most refreshing films about the film for me was that you're right. The, these classic monster characters became comical almost because they were so, uh, overly so ubiquitous, adapted. yeah. Yeah, and they were everywhere and even from almost from the time that they were even created in in a cinematic form, they became sources of humor or sympathy. Right. Where there's this, this right. version of the Invisible Man, which I must admit I never saw as a monster or a particularly menacing figure, became monstrous. How did you kind of think about making him monstrous again? Well, I started with the character and, and that power. You know, you start with the power. And, and, and movies always have to live up to the promise of the premise. Like if you are going to make an, a movie about an invisible man, you need to exploit that. Like you need to answer the question, what is an invisible man capable of? So I had a notepad much like yours. That's how I always start when I'm, when I'm screenwriting. I like to prolong the period of gathering ideas and just thinking about the film. I like to think about the film for a good couple of months before I ever write a word. And 
during that time, I was listing various things that the invisible man could do to you. And it was everything from steal your car keys. Like he could steal things from you. <laughs> he could be standing right next to you. And when you look away for one second, he makes your phone disappear. And suddenly it's like, where's my phone? So that's obviously at the lowest level of things he could do all the way to the highest level of, you know, more malevolent, serious things that he could do. Um, and I had that list and, I, and slowly I worked my way through that list and I would sort of pick out the highlights. And I knew I wanted to start small and get big. And so that was really how, that was really how I made the character scary, I think, or tried to, is by concentrating on what this person is capable of with invisibility. Like and at what point did you decide to focus the actual story on not him, but actually one of his victims? His in, one of his victims, really, because there's several in the film. Right. Um, I think that was very early on. Um, I think, you know, past iterations of The Invisible Man have concentrated on him as a character study. And you know, the original novel is all about this character's descent into madness, which I think is great. And obviously H.G. Wells was so far ahead of his time with his stories. I mean, they're still resonating today. War of the Worlds and, and, and The Invisible Man are still resonating in today's pop culture, which is pretty incredible when you think about when they were written. But I felt that a modern audience would not be as scared by the idea of someone's descent into madness as they would if they put themselves in the shoes of a victim of this person. So you, you assume the descent into madness and you pick up the story where that, that shift to psychopath, psychopathy has already happened. And now he's putting his attention on someone. Like in the original Invisible Man movie in 1933... Mm -hmm. He victimizes people. He does murder people. Well, all I did was change the camera angle. Now I'm, I'm looking at the movie through the eyes of his murder victim. And what's that like? What's it like to wake up in the middle of the night and feel like there's someone in the room with you? In fact, sometimes when I'm writing a film, I'll start to think of the movie almost in terms of trailer images. Like the trailer <laughs> will come to me first before I've written anything. And one of the first trailer images I had, which is actually in the final trailer, but this was one of the first things was the image. It was, I had the image in my mind of a woman sitting in a room. She was talking to someone and then she looked over and said, there's someone in that chair. And I could imagine the camera pushing in on the chair. And then sure enough, that moment is in the trailer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's really a matter of just letting these ideas coming to you and just being able to decipher which are the good ones and which are the bad ideas. And I wanted to ask you kind of, to dig a little bit deeper on the on the theme of control, which I found so mm. prevalent in the film, mm. and how Adrian Griffith really just gets off on controlling everyone and everything around him, especially mm. Cecilia. Mm. And what sort of research or thinking or collaborations did you seek to really dig into the mechanisms that someone who can use to create such an emotional hold and yeah. eventually gaslighting on someone? Yeah, I mean, I started off, you know, doing a lot of reading online, you know, I would go down that hole and I was reading a lot about controlling personalities and what they do. I then graduated up to, you know, interviews. I interviewed some counsellors at a domestic violence shelter for women in Los Angeles. 
And the counselors were really interesting. They were very gracious with their time. And they talked to me a lot about that control aspect. You know, they would tell stories about um, men who would put locks on the fridge because they wanted to control when the, when the, when their partners could eat even. There was that level of... I, it, it's, it's one thing to have an idea that maybe this personality exists, but it's another thing to have someone actually tell you a story and to realize that there is a very specific type of personality that gets off on control to a really pathological degree, it goes far beyond. I mean, look, I'm a film director. I could be described as a control freak. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, if my wife was in on this interview, she would say, yeah, you know, but I'd like to think I have the control tendencies under uh, under control, have my own controlling nature under control. And it's and it's at least sits at the line of healthy. It, it's shocking to realize the the pathology and the lengths to which some people need to go to. Their control needs to be all consuming. Um, in the case of partners, they control when they leave the house, who they talk to. They listen in on their phone calls. They track them on their phone. I mean, these days tech has allowed us to see where somebody is. Mm. So you can get a text at the supermarket saying, "What are you doing at the supermarket? I never. I, I, you didn't tell me you were going out." And we see that from the very beginning, the way that his entire house is completely controlled by cameras. Yes, and it's all that. Everything was, is on their phones. Exactly, exactly. Like I wanted to give this feeling of total surveillance in the house. It's like a beautiful prison, that house. You know, it's this architecturally uh, forward-thinking house, but really it's this concrete box that is just surveilled by cameras, walls, dogs. That You know, there's, there's this sense of... Um, to get out of it, you have to escape the same way you would escape from a prison. It you feels know, you have, you have very. You to turn off alarms and, yeah. It feels very much kind of like an Alcatraz type house. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit actually about the production design, particularly about Adrian's house or even layer, because it feels like a very high tech version of a math scientist layer. Right. Yeah. So yeah. How I mean, did you work with your production designer? Did you have any particular references that you wanted to bring into that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of references. Alex Holmes was the production designer. He did The Babadook. And so I was aware of his work. Uh, I really love that film. And in chatting to him, I could see his ingenuity. You know, The Babadook was made for the smell of an oily rag. And, and he had to do a lot with a little. And, you know, Jennifer Kent was very demanding in her production design uh, requirements. If you see that film, it's a very high design. It's almost a fairy tale. Oh yeah, I know, this, I know it well. And it's also also extremely oppressive because most of it is set in in one single yes, house. Yes, and it doesn't quite feel real. But that's the aesthetic they were going for. I was going for the opposite aesthetic, seeing as we're dealing with a character that people already have a, a knowledge of, and it comes with a lot of gothic trappings. You know that when you think of this character, you don't just think of the bandages and the hat. You think of Victorian London. Yeah, you think of uh, you know the 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 doctor's case, the kit, and the image of that that silhouette walking down the the fog-bound street. So, I wanted to make the the very modern, clinical, grounded, realistic version. And so, our references were a lot of very suburban and urban images. Um, not just stills from other films, but we had paintings and references, color schemes. And it was always just came back to this relentless realism that Alex was so great at. And the house was part of that. We didn't, I didn't want to make it feel like a lair, like a villain's lair. It had to be 
beautiful and oppressive at the same time so that you could believe the character would want to live there. And um, I thought he did an amazing job with the lab. And that's another one that's hard to pull off. I mean, mm-hmm. a lab. How do you do that without getting into Tony Stark territory? Yeah, like, exactly. If you're making an Iron Man film, it gives you a lot of license to be a little bit colourful mm-hmm. and a little bit larger than life because the character is this larger than life character. And, and that's the way that they made that film. And, and I thought the original Iron Man film was just a rollicking good time. I loved it. But I wanted to do exactly the opposite. I kept saying to Alex, we've got to get away from Tony Stark. We have to buy that this laboratory is a very homemade, you know, something a wealthy person would have in their in their basement, you know, if they were in this. It actually reminded me a lot of the laboratory uh, in The Skin I Live In, the Almodovar Oh, film. wow, yeah, that was yeah. interesting. I, that film was kind of chilling as well. Yeah, exactly. In but its... also a home, a home yeah. mad scientist lab. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. It's 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 there's a certain way that people live now. Our our tech has consumed our lives and I think it's coming into our homes. It's not just like your average person these days can walk into their kitchen and demand a song and the some disembodied voice will say, you know, playing Neil Young. And it's we don't think anything of it. Um so I knew I could incorporate that tech integration into this house and, and people would buy it. They wouldn't think it was too over the top. I wanted to move on to Cecilia's character. Mm-hmm. I love that we sort of see her rise up through the film. We meet her possibly at her worst mm-hmm. possible situation, completely under Adrian's control. And you feel through Elizabeth's performance, the constant panic and fear yeah. and control that she's under, but just this spark of, the need for survival and escape and i wanted to to ask you kind of how did you collaborate with her on on fleshing out this character because even wordlessly and as she goes through her trauma you know it's very difficult for her to move or to speak or even to make simple gestures or actions or connections with people how did you flesh that out with her without it falling into the trappings of sort of becoming a, a, a damaged or vic- overly victimized woman. Right. It's, it's, it's tough to calibrate. I mean, I, I give Lizzie full credit. She, she, she was a huge collaborator. And the, the second we got on the phone, I said to her, I want your collaboration and your input because I'm writing a film here with a central female character dealing with a lot of these issues that affect women. And being that I'm a male writer, I feel like I don't have total authority on this issue and I needed that perspective and she was really generous. We spent hours sitting in rooms combing through the script and she would just give me her perspective. It wasn't like she was rewriting the script. Even little tiny razor cut changes that she would make, you know, it's like death by a thousand cuts, like all of the tiny little contributions she made on every line of the film added up to this huge picture. And I don't think I could have made this film without her um i can't imagine anyone else in the role but i also can't imagine making it with someone who didn't want to contribute who just said some actors are like just tell me where to stand and i'll say the lines you know i'm here to do a job i don't know how this film would have gone if i'd had one of those actors because i needed that contribution and she was great she you know she's a she's a a fully grown woman she has a lot of stories in her own life that she can relate to with this story and relationships that she's been in and that and so 
she would share stories with me and we would talk about it and we would and we would try to incorporate it you know in any way we could and how did you balance those almost two complementary types of performances that you managed to get out of her of both the very raw emotional side and the incredibly physical side especially in the, in the confrontations with the invisible man yeah she would laugh if she was here because the one thing she said she didn't love about the film was the physical stuff she she's 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 not a gym rat by her own admission she's like Oh, I hate the, you know, she, she keeps saying to me, like, I didn't know I was going to have to do so much running in this film. Uh, I should have read the script more closely. But, you know, what's funny is between action and cut, she can do anything. She told me this story. She was working on top of the lake and she had to be playing darts in a pub. And she'd, she told me she'd barely played darts in her life. For some reason, just didn't come up. And there she was, and as a practice run, she threw a dart and it like nearly hit the craft services guy in the head. It was so far off the board. And everybody's looking at each other like, how are we going to... Because the script requires her to be in this like match of skill. So they call action, bullseye. Another bullseye. Like somehow between action and cut, she becomes another person and she can do whatever's... And then as soon as you call cut, she can't play she can't play darts anymore. Like something something <laughs> weird happens and when she told me that story, I was like, "Wow, this really is who she is because she would be looking at the stunt scene and she'd be thinking, oh, "I don't know. I don't know how we're going to do this." And then you would call action and it was incredible. Like she just transformed. She just her body does whatever's required for the scene and so full credit to her. They weren't easy scenes being dragged around by mm. wires and um, she was up for anything that was not really dangerous. There were a couple of things that were actually pretty dangerous and we had to bring in the stunt person, but um, most of the time it was her. It really reminded me really strongly of this uh, film from the 80s called The Entity. Oh, uh, yeah, really The Entity, it. yeah. Very maligned at the time, and I think wrongly so, but it really brought up this kind of notion of, um, of women's stories not being believed. Right. So I wonder if you even, did you think about how you know, where, did you know that they were going to touch a huge cultural nerve or did you specifically want to explore what it's like for a female character or a woman in that position to be constantly um, disbelieved? I, I don't know. I, 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 it rose organically out of the writing of the script. Like I started with the character and as I'm writing and I'm figuring out that this woman is escaping this relationship, it started to speak to these issues that were being talked about but the thing is this stuff's always been around you know it's not as if domestic violence is a thing that just happened like what's new is that people are talking about it in a more public way suddenly a few rocks have been kicked over and they've exposed the cockroaches underneath and we're having a public conversation and and it's and it's enlightening and sobering for uh, a, a male such as myself to hear these stories of just how common sexual assault is, just how common verbal abuse is, just how common all this stuff is, you, you want to believe it's not that common. You want to believe that only the bad guys do it. And But to, when you realise that every woman you know has a story to tell, it becomes kind of shameful. And so that conversation was being played out as I was writing the film, almost in tandem. So I just was... I, w I think... I wasn't trying to exploit the issue or say, ha ha, I'm going to be the first Me Too movie. It was more that I was 
thinking that this idea of an invisible man spoke spoke very loudly to the idea of the unseen threat and not being believed what better metaphor can you get than the invisible man and that's i think that's why these monsters have lasted because whether it's dracula or the invisible man you can shape you can shape the story of who they are to our current anxieties you know you could make a dracula movie about the coronavirus you know, you, you can... I mean, that's the power of horror, isn't it? Yeah, that You that's, can talk about taboo subjects and social anxieties under the guise of monsters and... Um, just entertainment. Yeah. Just pure drive-in, you know, grindhouse entertainment. It's, it's always happened. I mean, I see a lot of people online saying, don't cram messages into my horror movies. But the thing is, filmmakers are always saying something. You know, they're always, you know... Night of the Living Dead is about the Vietnam War, but you don't have to view it that way. You can just view it as a, a zombie movie, an entertaining zombie movie. That Trojan horse aspect of horror movies has always been one of their greatest strengths because it means that people are in the multiplex taking something in and they, even they don't know they're taking it in. Um, I love that about the horror genre and this movie doesn't make me an authority on anything. What it is is a testament to this character that H.G. Wells created over a hundred years ago. A character that a character that was created over a hundred years ago. The fact that a movie can be made in 2020 and spark some sort of cultural interest and resonate with the current culture. It it doesn't speak to any screenwriting skill that I have. It speaks to the power and resilience of this character. And, and how malleable it is, you can, how how you can wrap it around things. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm just I feel privileged to be able to carry the torch of this IP for another. There'll be someone else. Someone else in the future is going to make an Invisible Man movie. I'm not going to be the last, but if I can contribute to the history of this character, if this is a little marker on the history, uh, then I'm happy. You know. To wrap up, can I can I ask you about the characterization of Adrian, but not so much the characterization, but the choice to keep him out of sight. And mm. for a long part of the movie, I was completely convinced that we'd never see his face. Right. You'd see a hand, the silhouette, um, the fact that he was not kind of a, a big a big name actor as well was quite telling. Maybe it's a reveal, or maybe it's Robert Downey Jr., who knows? Right, exactly. <laughs> I was really fully expecting we'd never actually get to see the man um, that was creating all of this torture. Right. So could you talk a bit about the, the tension? Because we never really see his face until the, almost the very end. Yeah. Um, so the, in a really roundabout way, my question is, what made you decide to really keep him out of sight for so much of the film? I think it was basically me wanting to make this character mysterious and ethereal and unknowable. To me, the best monsters have an unknown quality to them. You know, one horror filmmaker that I love um, who is not considered a horror filmmaker and wouldn't consider himself a horror filmmaker is David Lynch because he deals with this nightmare logic and his movies have this strange otherworldly quality to them where you can't quite tap into it. It looks like our world, but the people are moving and speaking differently and you can't grab onto the rules of his movies because there are no rules. And when there are no rules, 
you feel unsafe because anything could happen in his film. And I love that. You know, I, I love that that quality that David Lynch has. And I knew I knew I needed to bring something of that to this character. I can't put him front and center. If you want people to be afraid, you have to make them off guard, make them feel like this person could be everywhere. Um, this, this person, this character has not given any of themselves to me. They're not making anything easy. In fact, they are hiding. In, that's what the character is, you know. A lot of times when people try to portray the invisible man, they will, they'll show that he's there by hanging some clothes on him, you know, put a coat and a hat on him. And even though that's the iconic image of this character, to me it's not interesting because that's the visible man. I like the invisible man. I like looking into the corner of a room and wondering if there's anybody there. So that was just something that I had not seen done with a movie like this that I wanted to kind of exploit a little bit. And it also allows us to project whatever fears mm -hmm. we have or whoever we fear as well onto this yeah. figure because he's faceless for such a long time. Yeah, exactly. The fear of the unknown. Like the audience's imagination is the most powerful tool you have. It really is. Like think of think of all the monster movies that came in the wake of Jaws. Like Jaws really kickstarted this trend. Uh, uh, there's a lot of monster movies made before Jaws, obviously. You know, King Kong, etc., etc. But what Jaws did, it started this structural trend of we hide the monster, we hide the monster, we hide the monster. Third act, we show you the monster. And then every, every monster movie made post-Jaws from the relic to whatever follows that template set by Jaws. Think about in all those movies, think about how disappointed you were when you finally saw the monster in the cold light of day. It never lived up to never the shadow. Because your your imagination was crazier than the filmmakers and the prosthetics could be. I remember having that feeling. And so The Invisible Man's perfect because there is no reveal. You know, the reveal is he's not there. So I really love messing around with that. Thank you so much for Thank your you. time. No, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you. And I'm wishing you the best of luck with the film as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> And that's it for another episode of the Final Girls podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We're everywhere. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirlsuk. You can also follow Becky on Twitter at Bonnie Dark, and I am on Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more witchy goodness next week.